My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hi, everyone. Welcome today. I'm really excited for today's presentation. My name is Mikhail Thorpe. I am joined by my business partner, Michael Strong. Today, we're going to be discussing morals and ethics and belief patterns in education, specifically related to Expat International School, but also in general as an overall topic. So I think this is going to be a really good one today. I hope that we get lots of participation for everyone who's going to be joining us tonight. If you guys have questions, please feel free to put them in the comments section below. And if we don't get to them throughout the presentation, then certainly we will get to them at the end. We'll, we'll slate 20, 30 minutes for as long as you guys like and go through all of the Q&A there. So as I said, my name is Mikkel Thorpe. I'm the co-founder of Expat International School. Michael, I will let you introduce yourself, maybe not just on the educational background, which is very long and varied. You have a lot of experience in education, but maybe also a bit of a background in your experience with freedom and liberty. Absolutely. So first, great to be here. Nice to meet you all virtually. I'm Michael Strong, co-founder of the Expat International School. And yeah, I want to talk a little bit about my journey. I do identify as a very small L libertarian and I got here because in graduate school, I went to the University of Chicago to prove the Chicago economists wrong. I had heard that they were for free markets and all good people at the time knew that free markets were evil. And so I thought, well, these Chicago economists pretend to be scientists, but they think they're good. So there must be something wrong with them. So I went to Chicago to study Chicago economics up close and personal. And I quickly discovered I knew nothing about economics. And I was actually depressed because it took me a while to realize that all of the uh, essentially leftists that I had heard from and respected also didn't know anything about economics. Very concrete case. They would always say that capitalism makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. One of the first things I learned is, though, in fact, capitalism makes the rich richer and the poor richer and brings universal prosperity over time. So really, from that point forward, I wanted to promote the ideas of entrepreneurship and economic freedom because I'm a great believer in peace and prosperity. Who wouldn't be for peace and prosperity? I also am a great believer in innovation, including innovation in education. And also innovation relies on the freedom to innovate. And so for me, entrepreneurship and economic freedom are essential for creating a better world. All of the wonderful comforts we have are dependent on them. And I'm eager to help more people around the world have access to the comforts of prosperity and modernity. And then finally, because I'm an entrepreneur and I live with a positive worldview, I'm saddened that so many people are depressed and anxious and believe that 
only bad things are happening. There are plenty of bad things happening, but I think that entrepreneurship and economic freedom show how things have gotten better, how things can continue to get much, much better, and that under the right circumstances, we can all work towards a better world for all. And what's not to like, and frankly, I will want to help young people have a positive entrepreneurial attitude towards life. So that's a quick version, Mikhail. Do you want to take it from there? Sure. I'd just like to talk for a minute as well from my side from the freedom aspect. As Michael said, he identifies as a libertarian with a small L. I definitely fall in the same boat. I don't know anything about politics. I don't follow the politics or want to comment on them whatsoever. But my core value, my belief pattern as an adult is one of peace and prosperity and liberty and freedom. I mean, that is what the entire podcast is about my network, my consulting, everything that I do falls within those belief patterns. And the school is no exception to that. The education that I had when I was growing up was quite a difficult situation. I would actually argue that I became a libertarian probably around the ages of about 10 to 12 years old, far before I knew what the word meant. I knew that there was things that were wrong with the system and specifically wrong with the educational system. So I just turned 39 last week. You guys may have seen the video we did. We had a huge party here in Panama with close to 100 people who flew in from all over the world. And this entire time, from 12 years old until 39 years old, I've been fighting for freedom and trying to help others and find freedom in my own life. So it's so rewarding to be able to put it into practice and help kids go through a program like Expat International School. Michael, why don't you kind of talk to us a little bit about some of the situations or some of the problems or what we're seeing in public education at the moment? Sure. Well, I'll start with kind of the recent things which are causing getting a lot of attention. You know, there are the things from COVID like masking children and not really giving them a lot of freedom. In addition, of course, CRT, critical race theory, gets a lot of attention. And of course, some people say, oh, they don't really teach CRT in schools. But what they do tend to teach very often in public schools is a oppressor-oppressed framework where depending on race, gender, and so forth, people are either an oppressor or an oppressed person. And my wife is from Africa. We know a lot of Africans. A lot of Africans don't want to send their kids to public schools in the United States because they don't want their psychologically healthy black kids to be taught that they're being oppressed all the time. And I certainly don't want kids of any race being told they're oppressors just for the race. So I think the oppressor-oppressed framework is really unhealthy. And any school that is doing that to kids, you should run screaming from. But the COVID and CRT crises are just some of the more recent ones. Actually, kind of going back a ways, something that I think is unfortunate is that most mainstream history courses you know, and some of them, some history courses still have victim oppressor narratives, but also they have a very statist view of history. So for instance, many history courses still teach that the Great Depression was caused by inequality. There are no credible economists who believe this. The economics profession is perfectly clear. Inequality does not cause depressions. And yet the field of history, and especially K-12 history, hasn't gotten the message. History courses teach that 
the Industrial Revolution, again, made the rich richer and the poor poorer. It's all about the misery of the working class. At no point do students learn that, in fact, mass prosperity for the working class took place for the first time in human history in the U.S. and Britain during the late 19th century. This is an extraordinarily positive thing. A lot of kids are taught to, you know, hate the West, hate the United States, feel guilty. They're not taught about the history of innovation that has given us the wonderful things we have. I could go on, but... The overall perspective, even in, there are a lot of, I don't want to say that all the teachers are bad. There are a lot of really honorable, hardworking teachers, but at best, they're coming from a very statist place for the most part. And so if one has a belief that entrepreneurship and economic freedom are not only positive, but crucially positive characteristics of our world, these are more or less invisible to the vast majority of K-12 students. And so I would say one thing we're doing very differently is we're highlighting how entrepreneurship and economic freedom, broadly construed, also personal freedom, these are essential characteristics for happiness and prosperity for the world. And if students don't learn this, they will not support these values. So we believe it's critical that they learn about the great things that have happened, the intellectual frameworks that have given us all we have today and are crucial for maintaining going forward. Very well said. We were having an email exchange the other day, Michael, and you wrote a line that I really liked. Global elites are increasingly hostile or indifferent to freedom. Can you expand on this a little bit? Because I just thought it was such a brilliant statement. Sure. Well, since I've been focused on the economic side, let me go to the personal and really freedom of speech. You know, I was raised with a heroic narrative. You know, Socrates courageously spoke his truth and, you know, asked questions. And as a consequence, he was put to death for not believing in the gods of the state I and mean, the, the gods of the city of Athens and for corrupting the youth. Galileo was heroic for speaking his truth about the fact that he believed the earth moved around the sun. And of course, the Catholic Church put him in house imprisonment, home confinement. And then on into the 19th century, John Stuart Mill believed that we absolutely needed to hear from all sides of an argument because even if we don't believe the other side of the argument, our own position, our own understanding is improved by hearing strongly stated views that disagree with us. And often, in fact, I think the conflict of different arguments, views, perspectives leads, in fact, to new and original ways of seeing things. So the reason I see this as relevant is we're all familiar with the fact that large platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, are shutting down dialogue and debate very often. There are all sorts of speakers who are deplatformed. And what's scary about this is we don't know really how much is being deplatformed. We don't know what messages are being shadow banned. We don't know the extent to which important voices are not being heard. And as a consequence, we don't know if the overall pursuit of truth is being in some ways harmed. And what's really concerning, going back to the elites, is that there are anyone who speaks out against this is regarded as a crazy renegade. You know, it's, what's interesting is there are high profile people ranging from Joe Rogan to Barry Weiss to Brett Weinstein. You know, some of them in some ways on the left, Matt Taby, formerly a famous leftist journalist from the Rolling Stone, Glenn Greenwald, a famous leftist journalist. There are a number of voices who have spoken out against this. But what's really frightening to me is the mainstream establishment, as perhaps symbolized by the New York Times and Washington Post and whatnot, they are not only unconcerned, they generally denigrate these people 
who are concerned about limits on freedom of speech. And so, you know, it's somebody, you know, and just to talk about the universities. And then for me, the fact that universities no longer consistently enforce freedom of speech is really horrifying. The universities, in my understanding, had always been temples of truth where they would allow for the unrestricted, diverse points of view. And that's part of the reason we have tenure. And that as a consequence of the conflict of different understandings and perspectives, gradually we would evolve towards clearer understandings of reality. So the fact that we have mainstream media, large-scale social media, and worst of all, in my opinion, the universities, not vigorously defending freedom of speech is an absolute crisis, call it a crisis of Western civilization. And so we need urgently to help young people understand why these kinds of arguments are important, why there are longstanding principles, why cultures that have shut down debate, such as China. At one point during the Song Dynasty in China, they were a prosperous country that could have perhaps launched their own industrial revolution, but instead they shut down essentially internal dialogue and debate. And any time, you know, in Islam, something similar. Islam had an incredible flourishing, and then they shut down dialogue and debate. There's a case to be made that the only reason industrial revolution, the Renaissance, Enlightenment, industrial revolution happened in Europe is that thinkers who would otherwise be shut down could escape from one country to another. You know, Spain would shut somebody down, they'd go over to Holland, and Holland was a place of, of tolerance. So this opportunity to speak your mind freely is essential, and it is no longer vigorously defended by our most elite institutions. It's a sad case that we're going through right now. And I think that it's so apparent as well because it's happening so fast. I mean, maybe before this would have taken years or decades, and now we're seeing a lot of the censorship happen over a matter of weeks or months or maybe over the last two years. I think that it has been there over a period of time, but it's just been accelerated so much over the last while. And it's enough to scare me that I would not send my children to public school whatsoever. We come from a mindset of homeschooling or world schooling or unschooling. These were the views that I entered into build this business with. Actually, I remember when I first spoke to you, one of our very first conversations, Michael, you said, well, this is homeschooling by professionals. And I thought, wow, that's such an amazing term, you know, getting a helping hand to help your kids through these types of things, being able to build something that speaks to their values, to the kids' goals and all of this. There's just so much to be said for that. Now, another point that I wanted to talk to you about, and you briefly touched on it now, is you wrote to me that K through 12 university education rarely provides a solid grounding in liberty and freedom minded ideas. Do you think that there are any of the universities out there that are still providing these types of things? Any other schools or are we like the last ones out there? I'm not sure. Well, so certainly at the university level, because I've been in education for decades and parents of, again, we're not talking right wing. We're just talking heterodox in some respect you know, not not uh, lockstep progressive. Anybody who's not lockstep progressive is often concerned about um, where their kid will go to college. So, you know, there are a number of options. You know, the best known Hillsdale is very conservative. You know, St. John's College, where I and most of my staff went, Great Books College. Not ideological, but certainly respect for Western civilization, the great books, freedom of speech, those sorts of things. The GMU, George Mason University Econ Department, has a lot of Austrian economists. So anyone who wants to study economics, I encourage them to go to GMU Econ. You know, Chapman University in California is 
you know, better than many places. They've got ideologically diverse faculty. University of Dallas is a Catholic institution that is not gone crazy woke. You know, and so there are a number of institutions out there that I can recommend that young people go to school at. But I know many very bright people who if they go to a university, they have to hide. I know somebody who went to an Ivy League school this fall, and he's libertarian-leaning. He mostly has to keep his beliefs more or less hidden because you never know. And, and even more than the economic beliefs on, I mean, the woke thing is crazy. If you don't say something that's exactly the way you're supposed to say it, you get attacked. Just because the insanity is so crazy. Let me give you one super crazy anecdote. This is from the New York Times. Recently, there was a woman who's a novelist, a lesbian novelist, whose book was nominated for award. And it was the premise of the book was that all the men would die instantly. And so the world of women, there actually been a lot of lesbian books published along these lines. But she, her book was canceled because the trans community thought that it didn't adequately represent trans people. It erased trans people. So for me, you know, you've probably heard the vagina monologues have been accused of not being woke enough. You know, classic feminism is now in a place where there are people who are beyond it who can't accept that. So that's what I mean. It's no longer to the point where only can right-wing people are freaked out. Anybody who's not at the cutting edge, I mean, who would have thought that if you write a novel where all the men die, you have to make sure that trans people don't die? Or I, I don't know, it's it's crazy. But but your, your children could be in trouble if they get on the wrong side of some of these debates. So I, I think it's kind of a religious cult that's taken over a, a portion of our university. It's often unforgiving, harsh, you know, no kind of nuance subtly. Back in the day, we would argue points. And sometimes people, I've seen students take outrageous positions just to try it on. You know, a lot of kids, that's part of who they are. Part of being a teenager, I think a young adult, is sometimes trying on outrageous ideas for size. And I think that's how we become intellectual explorers. I want kids to learn to argue all kinds of strange and extreme things because that's how they think of possibility. If there's only a very narrow range of what is allowed to be thought and the thought police will go after you, your career, your college career, everything you have, your social reputation, if you say or do the wrong thing, that's not a place for openness, creativity, exploration. One more little rant and I'll let you have it back, Mikkel, but you know, even as mainstream a, a comedian as Jerry Seinfeld has said he doesn't want to play college campuses anymore because you know a comedian can barely go to a college campus and and just laugh and have fun. And I think this is a sickness that will eventually play itself out. I like to think that maybe we're on the other side of it, but it could be another 5, 10, 15 years, sadly, where I think you need to be really careful if you send your kid to many universities. Well, and I think that a lot of the damage is being done right now to children, and it will last their entire lives. I think that we need to be very careful about whatever that they consume, be that movies or books or TV shows. I mean, I certainly take a look at all TV programs before I allow my daughter to watch it. I want to understand how they're presenting information, what type of lens that things are going through. And I want to make sure it falls in line with our belief pattern as a family. I think that that is part of responsibility. Now, it is a scary thought to think about some of the things that are being taught in school and how so many of the ideas are being shut down and people are being shamed and canceled if they have something that does not toe the line. Now, when we have kids that go through our program, Michael, are you able to work with the families to help answer questions about different universities and which paths might be applicable for their kid if they are thinking about freedom and liberty and peace and prosperity? Or do you have ways that you can help them through this? 
Absolutely. And so I do recommend particular universities. Also, another strategy is engineering, math, science. It's still becoming corrupted ideologically. There are all sorts of woke debates in the STEM fields, but generally it's safer. Business is generally safer. You know, I personally love literature, but I think literature, you know, English departments are among the worst. You know, anthropology, sociology is really terrible. So partly it's a matter of advising into particular programs. Partly it's advising particular disciplines. You know, and some of this is just you know, being safe. Sadly, I think kids need to be careful what they say on social media, and they need to d- develop trusted communities of friends. I think gradually we'll have more options. You know, I'm working with the University of Austin project, which is a new university launched by Joan Lonsdale to fight against the woke thing. Famously on the free market universities, Universidad Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala City, is maybe the most free market university in the world. They now have campuses in Spain. So there are a number of options, and I certainly advise parents on these options. Actually, another option is going directly to the workforce. There is a lot of evidence that the return on college degrees is much lower than it used to be, and certainly in many fields, such as software development, UI, UX, design, video production, digital marketing, these kind of fields, you don't need a university degree. And even for students who may want to get a university degree, I encourage them to learn real skills maybe make money while they're at university. And that way they're not dependent on this corrupt system. There are wonderful places to learn together outside the system. Actually, just one of their program on a highlighter, the Teal Fellowships. Famously, I think about 15 years ago, Peter Teal gave 20 under 20 fellowships for teens to drop out of college and start a business. They get $100,000 in order to do so. And the winners of the Teal Fellowships include the founder of Ethereum. They include young man, Austin Russell, who has a billion dollar company. I think he's the world's youngest self-made billionaire. It's a leader company. You know, there are many young people who have had extraordinary careers without college by means of starting businesses when they're young. So that's the other thing is I am connected to many of the world's leading experts in teen entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship. And so if your child has an entrepreneurial interest, we can help them go as far and as fast as they want to go. Well, it's a very important point. I mean, our school was created by two entrepreneurs. Like, forget about a college degree. I dropped out of school at age 12. I don't have a high school degree, but I've gone out there and built multiple businesses. I run a seven-figure business of my own on the side of this school. The school is just one of my ventures that I have. And I did not go through traditional education by any means. So if you are looking for your child to learn entrepreneurship, there's no better place than our school and going through our mentorship program and speaking to people who have actually done it. You know, a lot of our guides, we don't call them teachers, a lot of the guides who have gone through have actually built real life things, real life businesses in their own life. So they can speak to the experience they've had through this process. We have a lot of the guides who are also at a much closer age gap between the children so that the children look at them with an idea that it is possible for them to go out there and create something, which I think is just so, so brilliant. One of the taglines for our school is the education we wish we had. And it's really true. I mean, I think that a lot of the parents and a lot of the families who come in, this is the education that they wish they had. If they could design anything from scratch, this is what they would do. And and that's really what we have done is designed a lot of these ideas from scratch. So, Michael, if economic freedom remains the path to prosperity globally, then talk to us about how we design our courses that are based on these ideas and how we implement them to help the children. Sure. So I'll answer it in a couple of ways. First, we do have a core humanities program that includes 
you know, many of the classics. We certainly read Plato and Aristotle, you know, Shakespeare. And a lot of those texts are not explicitly about freedom or economics, but they do have a respect for human agency. I would say human agency is really a main component of the Western classics. And many of the Eastern classics, we also read a number of Eastern classics. And so there's a huge emphasis on human agency, responsibility, choice, taking control of your life, taking control of your destiny. So I would say students are, and again, I would contrast this with a kind of victim-oppressor framework, students are immersed in an environment where all the faculty and all the texts we read take human agency and responsibility seriously. And right there, that provides us with a great foundation. More on the economic side, again, we do talk about the various ways in which innovation and economic freedom have led to prosperity. We're looking at adding an explicit piece of Austrian economics. I'd actually mentioned the Bitcoin standard. It's, a, I think, a fabulous book that is on the one hand on Bitcoin, but also has a good summary of some strands, key strands in Austrian economics. I'm very big on Austrian economics. One of the other things we do, and actually I've had students tell me this is their favorite course. For a couple of years now, I've taught a course on capitalism versus socialism. And I would say we just present the facts, you know, we go over the fact that, you know, there was this industrial revolution and then Marx had these ideas. The industrial revolution was making workers more prosperous and the Russian revolution happened. Whoops, a lot of people died. Stalin, mass murder, whoops. Then Mao comes along and whoops, mass murder again. Later we get to Pol Pot, whoops, mass murder again. And at the same time, showing how, meanwhile, in market economies, and especially the more market they are, the more prosperous they are. And the students are really struck by this incredible history of people over and over again with often good intentions trying to make the world a better place, but with catastrophic results. I have a friend who talks about a morbid fascination with the history of 20th century socialism. I think we should all have a morbid fascination with it. And I say morbid because it was unbelievably bad. Just if any of you have not recently looked at Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Castro is kind of a minor player. (laughs) Castro is a bad guy, but compared to the big bad guys, you know, minor player. And when you start reading this history or watching videos, we watch a lot of videos that have incredibly compelling footage, including the passion of the great the believers in this stuff. The kids are just like, their jaws are dropped open. You know, first of all, they've never heard of it. Most of these kids have never heard of Lenin, Stalin, Mao, none of it, none of it. And then when they hear about this and they see what happened, they are just absolutely bamboozled. And especially in light of the fact that the term socialism has had a revival in recent years. And then they look at ways to try to revive it. And we, we study articles on how you know, Scandinavia, although a lot of redistribution, actually has a lot of economic freedom. And so they see that all of the successful global economies have a relatively high degree of economic freedom. And a consistent state-controlled socialism has always been a catastrophe and mostly remarkably murderous catastrophe, you know, the students are really left with something that sticks with them. And I don't see this as the least bit ideological. If they go on to college and are surrounded by leftists, they can say, what about Lenin? What about Mao? What about Stalin? What about Pol Pot? What about Castro? And, you know, they'll know some facts about these situations. So if nothing else, they'll be grounded in a an understanding of historical facts that most young people are completely unaware of today. 
Yeah, I remember studying the Great Leap Forward pretty in depth at one point, and it was just unbelievable, the central planning and what that's done to literally tens of millions of people who perished under this, under Mao. And it's very interesting for me as well, because my wife is from mainland China. So for me, trying to understand a lot of Chinese culture and heritage and history is a big passion of mine. And we have this huge piece where the information that is shared with the Chinese people is completely black. They don't understand. It's like a section of time that they're not taught about whatsoever. And the Great Leap Forwards is one of them. So it really shows you how governments are censoring information and how it's being done around the world, that they cover all of these types of things up. So, I mean, do you have any advice, Michael, for people who want to ensure that their child understands the foundations of truth-seeking and prosperity and all of this? Well, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to homeschooled by professionals. So if your child is not in an environment where they are being exposed to these things, just on the freedom of speech, I think John Stuart Mill, everyone should read Mills on Liberty, whether they agree with it or not. But Mills on Liberty is one of these absolutely essential classics. And students need to be exposed to this notion that conflicting points of view are and have been, and I believe always will be, essential to the pursuit of truth. And again, the history of capitalism versus socialism. YouTube is an incredible resource. I think I remember back in the day when there were textbooks and there were history books. Now, you know, it may take some searching to find the good videos on YouTube. There are a lot of garbage on there, but you can find a compelling video on almost any historical topic you want to find. And I would encourage parents to watch these videos with their children and talk about them. We also watched video on the French Revolution and just the juxtaposition. I always like to point out the juxtaposition between what humans might feel in the face of, say, the slaughter of the French Revolution with the fact that the government of France regards it as a heroic time. And how can they understand the bloodiness of the past? And so I, I always like to get kids to think. My approach is never to preach, you know, this is right, that is wrong. I like to just put ideas in front of kids and have them weigh it. I think many students, many young people are attracted to socialism because they simply know no history. You know, if they knew some of the history, if nothing else, they have to be a little bit more cautious. You could say, why? Why would somebody admire something this bloody? Well, maybe they don't know it's that bloody. Would something like this be bloody again in the future? You know, how would you deal with that kind of violent revolution? People were advocating violent revolution. So I, I like questions. This is the Socratic thing. That's, you know, my core pedagogy is asking them questions. And I like to try to find fairly challenging moral dilemmas for them. So it's not obvious. I want them to pause and think. I want them to be torn between kind of solution A and solution B, and honestly kind of weigh the evidence. And as a consequence, I think it sticks more. I think if teenagers don't want to be preached to, and so if you're in the habit of just telling your kid what to think after around, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13, just doesn't work anymore, but expose them to information they may not be getting from other sources, ask them questions about it, and try to get them to see you know, what they personally value, what they really take seriously. You know, maybe through this Socratic method, a few may prefer radical equality, even at the cost of, I hate to say it, mass murder, but wow, okay, let them sit with that. And often I find, again, teenagers like to take on extreme positions just to be extreme. But I think over time, they think, no, I, I don't really mean that. I don't really mean that. 
One of the reasons I actually like to do this in a social group is if a teen takes an extreme position that implies mass murder, as, as 20th century socialism did, they back off. They always back off because their peers look at them like, what? And so I, I deliberately use peer pressure to encourage, I would say, more sane, thoughtful, reflective views, especially when it comes to issues like violence. Okay, so let's dig into the Socratic a little bit, because I'm not sure that everybody else understands, you know, your methodology for teaching or guiding through kids through this. I mean, I came from an education background where it was rote memorization, and I had a hell of a time through school with rote. Can you really dig into what the difference is with Socratic? Sure, absolutely. So most of our classes are Socratic in the sense that the teacher's job is to ask questions. So a typical format, it's not the only format we use, but a typical format is we read a text together or watch a movie together, and then we discuss it. And the guide will often ask a question. I mean, we have, In our entrepreneurship course, we've been discussing how do we know when a business activity is ethical and when it's not? And we don't have, we, the adults, have no dogma there. You know, most students would believe a business that is lying, manipulative, cheating is unethical. You know, today we were asking, how about a business that makes bombs? Well, does it matter if it's using bombs for aggression or if the customers use the bombs for defense? How do you know? And of course, with Ukraine in the news, these issues are very hot. Cigarettes, do cigarettes should have cigarettes have warning labels or not? Should social media have warning labels or not? Should people take a stand on issues and what kinds of issues? If people, if adults are informed, should adults be able to do whatever they want as long as they are honestly informed? And it, so again, our approach is just to get students to think about all kinds of issues. And what happens is they disagree. And again, I celebrate disagreement. I want the students to disagree. We actually had a really great conversation the other day where somehow food came up and the fact that some people think that it's horrible to eat dogs. And we had an Asian student who said, in my culture, it's completely appropriate to eat dogs. And you're simply being you know, racist to tell us we can't eat dogs. And I love the passion. I love this passion of the conflict. And what happens is, you know, in universities, when I see these people shouting down speakers and shutting down debate, I think they haven't had the experience of working through a vigorous disagreement. So I want to ask questions that get the kids to disagree and disagree on hot button, more moral issues where they really do have different perspectives. And my job is not to tell them what the right one is, but I want them to be consistent. So if they think that government should be paternalist and control them, I want them to follow the implications of that all the way through. If they believe in freedom, okay, let's follow that all the way through. And I find that often students become, again, much more careful thinkers when, when they see how a consistent principle can go in all kinds of directions. So what I really hear you saying is that it's not about telling the kids how to think or what the right answers are or getting them ready for tests or quizzes or anything like that. It's not this top down. You're trying to get the children to actually think and make their own decisions, make up their own minds and critically work through different types of problems. Absolutely. I mean, I do want to emphasize that, for instance, with math problems, you got to solve the math problem. So there is, you know, certain kinds of things you have to solve to get the right answer. And math is the best example of you got to get the right answer. But I would say in a lot of fields, being able to have an idea and defend the idea through rational argumentation is essential. Say in most of the humanities, really the social sciences, it's about defending your ideas, using reason and evidence. And so an implication of that is they have to learn about reason and evidence. 
evidence. Initially, again, I think one of the pathologies of debate in our society is people just shout and think if they shout louder, somehow that'll make a difference or if they're more aggressive about it. No, I'm an old-fashioned believer that gradually we pursue the truth by means of evidence and that if we disagree on something, we're each obliged to bring the best evidence we can bear. And we should also accept criticisms of our reasoning and evidence so that we can improve the quality of our reasoning and evidence. This is part of how we teach writing. You know, I think that essay writing is a really important skill and a big part of becoming a good essay writer is understanding logical structure. What supports your thesis? What is the logical set of arguments that would support your thesis? And you ultimately should encourage other people to try to rip your ideas to shreds. And it sounds kind of aggressive put that way. But again, the old fashioned vision of rational deliberation is people are arguing and you want to have your arguments tested as vigorously as possible because that's how you can come up with the best arguments. So whether it's in a formal written essay or whether it's in a live conversation or ultimately in things like business emails, a lot of times in the professional world, we need to have logically coherent, well-structured arguments for our points. And I work to get students to understand this ability to think logically and to express your opinions rationally is a superpower that is useful in all aspects of your life. All right. So I hear exactly what you're saying. I'm kind of curious, not just from the aspect of philosophically how this all works, but like from the emotional side, like I want to know what is it like when you're there in the class? Like I don't, I'm not a teacher at the school. I'm helping to form the school and put these ideas in place, but I'm not there every single day like you are. So what is it like when the light bulb goes off or the children kind of get it and they understand these ideas of freedom and peace and prosperity? How does it shape them as human beings? Well, first, I'll just go back to me. And I think I can speak for most of our guides. It's really a fun place to educate. I think all of us love ideas. We love thinking about ideas. We love helping young people develop their ideas. We love the lights going on all over the place. And so to that extent, it's just really inspiring. And again, just the other day, I had a student who was going off to college. I taught him the capitalism versus socialism course a number of years ago, and he still regards it as the best course of his high school career. And so, you know, we see these students really developing as thinkers. I keep bashing the colleges because you see these, you know, if you follow this thing, college students shouting people down. Our students are realizing they have an obligation. And for me, that's a big part of it. We have an obligation to think. So I love it when a student will, on the one hand, confront a student, another student with a disagreement. And actually, just to give you a feeling for it, we had one student on the what kind of entrepreneurship is ethical was saying things like, well, if you're making the world a better place, it has to be clean energy or you know, organic foods, that kind of thing, not something like jewelry. Turns out one of our other students' parents own a jewelry business, and she kind of stood up, we're on screen, so metaphorically, and said, I believe that jewelry businesses do help make the world a better place. The people who buy the jewelry from my family, it's a symbol of love. It's a symbol of happiness. It gives them a wonderful sense of how they feel about themselves. And she was able to articulate in a really fine way the value of something as simple as jewelry in her family's jewelry business. So I see these students coming alive with standing up for their own, their own beliefs and then what happens is um, both sides become, they're intellectually alive, but they're also morally respectful to each other, more so than had they not gone through an experience like this. Wonderful. Yes, I think that, 
I mean, I sat in on a number of the classes at the beginning of September, and it was so amazing to watch the interaction between the different children and how excited they got on different projects and the engagement level. It's not something that I remember from my educational experience. I've also had an opportunity to meet a bunch of the kids here in Panama. We have a small cohort of, of students who live in Panama City and spending time with them and getting opinions of them about the program and do they enjoy it? Do they like it? And how has it affected their life? Also talking to some of the parents. I actually have one family I was talking to where the mother and the son did not have a great experience together for a number of years. And there was a lot of animosity between them. The child joined the program and a lot of the happiness came back and it actually started to mend the relationship between the family. And he moved back into the house and they were down here visiting and everything was just going so well. And it's just amazing to see the transformation with a lot of these kids. So thank you, Mikhail. And if I could speak to a part of that, that I think people have realized. Personally, I think adolescence in the United States and probably much of the developed world is a catastrophe. 75% of high school students are unhappy. Two thirds are not engaged in learning at school. 37% are seriously depressed. 19% are suicidal. Significant numbers are on medication, and then others self-medicate with illegal drugs and alcohol. They're not happy and well. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that adolescence is a time of great energy and independence and vigor. And if you're not validating and supporting their independence and their sense of responsibility and power, if they're basically sitting in a desk and being told what to do all day, every day for years, of course, they become dysfunctional. Now, there's a famous experiment called Rat Park where they took rats and got them addicted to cocaine and saw, look, see how addictive cocaine is. And then they let them free in a park and they lost interest in cocaine because they could run freely and live natural lives. I think that's emblematic of how if we allow our students, if our, allow our teens to have real living experiences where they're respected for the empowered young people they are, they're much less likely to fall into adolescent dysfunction. And this includes conflict with family. I won't claim that our school magically eliminates all conflict as a family, but going to your point, I think that I have often seen many families experience much less conflict in the household because the child is no longer being treated like a prisoner for six to eight hours a day, every day. You can imagine the underlying resentment that develops in such a stage and boils over in the household all too often. Well, those are some very, very scary statistics, Michael. That does not paint a fantastic picture of what's happening in education. The last thing that I kind of want to bring up before we get into Q&A, and, and I encourage you guys, if you have questions, to start putting them in the chat right now. We'll try to get to as many of them as possible. I want everybody to understand that although we are talking about many different things here, this is not a political organization. I hope it doesn't come across as a political organization. I just want everybody to understand the values that we hold at the school. The values that we hold are about entrepreneurship, about peace, about prosperity, about personal responsibility. These are the things that we stand for. So if you stand for these types of things as well, then I think that it's appropriate for to have your children also following and learning these types of values from people who live it in their own lives. So Michael, I'm not sure if you have anything else to add to that. Otherwise, we will jump into the Q&A. Well, I would just emphasize, yeah, an entrepreneurial can-do attitude that I think was kind of mainstream American 
not so long ago, uh, I'm probably Canadian, respecting our Canadian, my Canadian colleague here. But yeah, I think a lot of these things are very mainstream, but sadly, elites, K-12 institutions and universities are no longer preserving them in the way they they used to. And really, the entrepreneurial optimism is global. I've I've given talks around the world to entrepreneurs, and whether uh, they're entrepreneurs in Guatemala or Russia or Saudi Arabia, I find entrepreneurs in general to be can-do, optimistic sorts of people because they're empowered to get things done in their lives. Whereas I think people that are stuck in dead-end jobs, like students stuck in what feels like dead-end schooling, are just less happy. So for me, this ultimately comes down to happiness and well-being. Very well said. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time today. We'll get into Q&A. If anybody wants to put in some questions here, we're happy to stay for as long as you want. If you want to know more about the program, if you would like to know more about the background or the curriculum or anything that we have to do at the school or even how you can support freedom in your own house if you have children who are a little bit older, a little bit younger, we're here to assist you. Okay, Bryce is typing... Do you have summer camps? Michael, summer programs. Talk to us about the summer programs. Yes, we are having three three-week sessions. And we're just getting them out there, and they're a sample of our program. They would be basically two hours in the morning of Socratic and two hours in the afternoon that are more project-oriented. So not heavy-duty academic. We do also have math tutoring. Uh, if your child needs extra math tutoring over the summer. But the idea in the summer is very much to explore ideas and to get young people to think about ideas and enjoy it during the summer. So please be sure you're on our mailing list and we'll announce the topics for the three-week summer camps shortly. Well, and another thing that you can bring up, Michael, is the trip. I think we have a trip planned. Yes, we're taking the students to Greece, of course, consistent with emphasis on Socratic and Plato and Aristotle. We're taking students to Greece, which will be really exciting. Bryce has a follow-up question. He says, is it a day camp or an overnight? Just so we're clear, the program that we're running right now is all virtual. So the families from are living all over the world. So we're not doing any in-person programs at the moment, although we have some families who are organizing themselves and meeting up for play days and these types of things. Yeah, so it's the summer camp would be uh, two hours 10 to 12 central time in the morning and one to three central time in the afternoon, Monday through Friday. So just four hours, Monday through Friday. And to emphasize what Mikkel said, we're very global and cosmopolitan. We have students from Pakistan, Iraq, Panama, Canada, the United States, guides from Mexico, Turkey, Eswatini, staff from Honduras. We're extremely international. Definitely. I think that's one of the most exciting things about the program is where everybody comes and everybody can share their experiences. And especially for the expat side, you know, if the family is moving over to a new country for the very first time, the children being able to interact with one another because they're going through very similar experiences. You know, maybe they don't have a lot of friends in the community. Maybe they don't even speak the language of the new country that they're in. So having the expat international school allows them to make friends and make the transition a lot better. And they can speak to one another and and go through this uh, at the same time. Okay, follow up from Bryce. The kids need in-person stuff after so much isolation. I absolutely agree with you. There are a lot of things that we do to support this. There are a lot of sports programs. We very much like these types of things. Like I said before, we've had families that have gotten together here in Panama. I think in the United States, there's other families who have formed little cohorts. I'm even in the moment I was on the weekend, I was talking to a friend of mine who's building communities here throughout Central America. We had some ideas. I haven't even told you about this, Michael. 
he has an idea of bringing our program to his communities and they would actually even build a small schoolhouse so they would be able to do the programs themselves and then afterwards they would be able to do extracurricular things together in these communities so there's a lot that we want to go in this direction and we'd certainly understand the need of face-to-face interaction Actually, just on that note, we've got several families that are doing nature schools on Wednesdays. So nature schools are kind of an experience that seems to be available in various places. And our schedule is different on Wednesdays. It's electives on Wednesdays. So it works out for kids to take Wednesdays off and do nature things, which I think is wonderful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. No other questions. We'll call it early tonight then. That's just fine. I, if you guys think of other questions, if you have something that you guys want to ask, you can always email us. Otherwise, you can go to the website, expatschool.io. There'll be a contact us form on there. If you want to speak one-on-one, you can schedule a call with us. We're happy to walk through the program and a lot more of the details with you and see if this is right for your family. Jerry says, no questions. Thanks for asking. Thanks for today. Okay, everyone, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Michael, for your time. I always appreciate learning from you and answering so many questions and taking tonight to help everyone. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Mikkel. Thank you, everyone. Have a great night. Bye-bye. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com.